All right, we should be live. So good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Yeah, sure. I don't have to get into a lot of background, um, but recently there was a, uh, a sister in Christ, a uh, new convert, and she had some questions. Uh, she she voraciously tore into the New Testament. I think she read the New Testament like three or four times, came to the conclusion on her own, I need to be baptized, be forgiven of my sin. Jesus is the Son of God. Um, interestingly, she went back and read the Old Testament. And I was really excited about that because uh, I, I love the Old Testament. Uh, I just, there, there's a, there are treasures to be found everywhere through the Old Testament for Christians. Um, but she got to reading it and was quickly confused and determined that the New Testament maybe wasn't really uh, true because she started looking at the Old Testament laws and the teachings, and she concluded that New Testament's not where it's at, it's the Old Testament where it's at, um, which I found challenging. And, and she and I began to look at some passages together. Um, and I, I, I wanted to look at today, if, if it were possible, just, it, it's easy to look at the New Testament and look back at the Old Testament um, and, and see, you know, these Jewish writers like Matthew, uh, like Peter, like Paul, they they interpret the Old Testament. Luke tells us in Luke 24 that Jesus did the same thing. Uh, he interpreted the Old Testament as pointing to him. But I'm wondering what it would be like just to read the Old Testament, uh, kind of like Ethiopian eunuch style. You know, Philip is you know in the chariot with the eunuch and they've just got the scroll of Isaiah. And he's like, what is this? Who, who is this talking about? Uh, and, and what would it be like not to try to use the New Testament to talk about the New Covenant, but rather to use the Old Testament and look at how it it propels us forward to, to needing someone, needing something more. Um, and I've got some passages in mind. I think we had talked about this before, come, come loaded for bear with some passages. Um, but uh, what, what would be some passages you guys would go to to try to uh address this need for something more beyond the old testament scott well to one thing i'd ask and this type of question would often come from maybe a jew in this case it's a person who's now taking a kind of jewish position uh but um would be this the first five books the books of moses of those first five books how many of those books center around animal sacrifice, the Levitical priesthood, and the tabernacle, or to be applied later, the temple? A lot of Exodus, a whole lot of Leviticus, a lot of Deuteronomy. That's what it's about over and over and over and over. So if that is central to the law, the tabernacle, the Levitical priesthood, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And if what it meant was that God was dwelling with his people Israel, then why, and if its removal in the blessings and cursings would show that he was not with Israel, then what would it mean that for 2,000 years, they had been unable to do most of the Torah. Sure. Yeah, yeah I think that, that's, that's a huge question. Um, it, it, it would almost seem as though uh, God had abandoned his covenant 
uh, as many mm-hmm. people. And, and that's, I think, where, where many Jews today, they splinter off into different uh, ways of going about either trying to achieve uh, the old law or uh, many Jews are just, um, I won't say many, yeah, I guess many is the right word. Many are just atheists. Uh, they, they've given up on a, a faith in a God who cares about them personally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the blessings and cursings, and then you look at Jeremiah 31, where there was a promise that a different kind of kind of covenant would be made in the future, that, to me, uh, that's something that she ought to think about before mm-hmm. going backwards. John? Yeah, so um, thinking about this from the perspective of like what, what Justin was mentioning, like the Ethiopian eunuch perspective, um, maybe the the first and biggest uh, passage that you'd think of that points to the new covenant, points to Christ, points to a Messiah, would be Isaiah 53. Uh, I think we kind of discussed um, beforehand that uh, that's kind of an easy one. So we're going to, we're not going to do that. If our audience, if you don't know Isaiah 53, you can ask us about it. We'd be happy to talk about it. Um, really, really powerful scripture uh, and prophecy yeah. about the Christ, what he was going to do. Um, but that's not the only place in the Old Testament that points to a coming Messiah, points to a coming kingdom of God. Uh, it, it's all over. So Scott mentioned Jeremiah 31. Uh, I'd like to maybe look at Micah chapter 4. Um, I really like the picture in Micah 4. It's a really cool picture, and it really it couples with Micah 5. So we're going to look at pretty much all of Micah 4 and a little bit starting in Micah 5 um, and just see kind of the message that God's trying to present here. Micah is a prophet who prophesies during the time period of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And while Micah is prophesying uh, to Hezekiah in that time period, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, if you know your Israelite history, they're being destroyed, uh, if not already destroyed. By the time Micah is prophesying, uh, Syria has come in. God is uh, pouring out his wrath on Israel because they've abandoned him, given themselves to idolatry and those things. Um, and so that's the context of what Micah is talking about here. So that'll help make a little bit of this make more sense. So Micah chapter 4, verse 1 says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. It's a really cool picture. Um, I, I don't know. I've got a couple of things to, to point out. But w- what stands out in this prophecy and this image to you guys, what, what Micah is revealing? Well, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's a national or international effort to come to God, which um, Almost seems unusual, except as Scott was pointing out, the even the old law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, there are places in those books 
where God has concern for the other nations. And yet he still says in a place like Deuteronomy uh, chapter five, uh, look, what other nation has had a God speak to it like I've spoken to you? So God has this personal relationship with this one nation. And now it seems like he's inviting all, he's not just having like a distant concern for them. He's inviting all the nations to come together and be uh, bound in peace. So it's a really mm-hmm. beautiful international kind of worship. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you see that in verse one, also in verse two, many peoples are flowing up to this mountain of the Lord, to his house. Um, many nations will come together and they'll all say, come on, let's go up to God's house. Let's, let's share in this learning together. Go ahead, Scott. Uh, I'm going to play uh, Rabbi Zach here. <laughs> um, this has a beautiful passage about the future and you Christians, you look forward to things in the future. And if people say, well, it hasn't happened yet, you say, well, don't be mockers saying it won't happen. It's going to happen in the future. And this is going to happen in the future. And what does it say? All nations will go where? They the will Zion. come. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. It doesn't say, let us go to a church, you know, uh, in a place where they're talking about Jesus. It said, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he must teach us his ways and his paths. That's the Torah. And for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So as soon as you just sounds like the kind of conversation that I would be having with this this young lady I'm talking about. As soon as you Gentiles get done with all your misemphasis and will come to Jerusalem and get circumcised and become Jews and worship the God of Jacob with us, then we will have shalom. All right, Jonathan. Kick him in the teeth. I mean, uh, correct him. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure if I have all of the um, the answers to that. This picture of God's mountain, um, it reminds me, my first thought is it reminds me of some other prophecies uh, where God talks about his mountain being established. Um, in Daniel chapter 2, there's the image that Daniel has of this rock coming down, shattering the, the golden image and the rock forming this huge mountain that fills yes. the whole earth. Um, I think that's key, the idea of it filling the whole earth. Um, the, the mountain of the Lord, this Mount Zion, uh, is referring to the city of God, um, which directly referred to Jerusalem, um, but more broadly referred to, I think, the, the heavenly dwelling of God, um, this, this place where God dwells with his people. And so I think uh, when you're looking at this prophecy or other prophecies in the Old Testament of God's mountain, um, while directly it would have been talking about Jerusalem, because that was the picture of the Jews would have seen, um, but in some of the other prophecies and some of the explanations later on, God goes on to talk about when you look at this passage and God enrolling the people of his nation into Zion, it doesn't just include the Jewish people um, and non-Jewish people that become Jews. God enrolls the whole world or is capable of enrolling the whole world into his city. Maybe if we have time, um, we can look at uh, Psalm 87, which is a really helpful psalm uh, later on uh, in, in the program to see kind of the, the citizenship 
of the city of Zion, which pairs really well with with Micah four. That's my answer. That's that's what I think of. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Go ahead, Justin. For, for, for what it's worth, uh, and it may not be much comfort, I, I thought of Daniel 2 as well. Uh, in, in Daniel 2, verse 28, when, when Daniel's explaining the vision, the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had, uh, he tells him in Daniel 2, 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days which is the same phrase that's used here in Micah 4, verse 1, shall come to pass in the latter days. And so there's kind of a timestamp that that dream of Nebuchadnezzar gives. You've got the, the golden head being Babylon, uh, silver kind of uh, shoulders and torso uh, being Persia. Then you've got the Medes, uh, and then you've got Rome. Uh, I'm getting this all mixed up. Persia, Medes, uh, Grecians, and then the Romans. Uh, but the Romans being that that last empire kind of world kingdom, he says it's in that kingdom's days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. So it seems like there's this definite time period given to uh, so so to our um, um, rab rabbi's advocate. I would say, what would you do with Daniel two? Yeah, so you, you've got something coming there, this kingdom of God coming, and uh when we come back here to uh and i'm not sure what a rabbi would say about daniel too uh i've never talked we discussed that and don't know what he would say so i can't play rabbi's advocate very well there um <laughs> back to micah four uh another thought and we want to primarily just stay in the old testament but since it's been mentioned i'll jump to the new testament Jesus refers to this, I believe, and Isaiah, the parallel passage there, when in Luke 24, he's explaining everything to the disciples, he explained them the law and Moses and the prophets. He said, thus it was written that, you know, the Christ should suffer and die, and that the word would be preached beginning at Jerusalem, that it would go out from Jerusalem. And so you do have, there. there's that. But I don't think that in and of itself is going to convince somebody that doesn't believe the New Testament and, and believes only the old. So I would maybe come back here and say, okay, it says we're going to go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. Where's your house? It's still been left desolate, not one stone left upon another since the first mm -hmm. century AD. Mm -hmm. If God's will for us is to be walking in the Torah, and the Torah is hugely about what you do with the concerning the priests and the sacrifices and the building and the maintaining of the house of the Lord, why is there no house of the Lord if the Torah mm -hmm. is it? So you would say yeah, Matthew 23 is his prophecy that um, that says, look, this house is going to be destroyed. And it was. Uh, and so you've kind of got this uh, these two prophecies and they're saying, well, our prophecy, Micah 4, has yet to be fulfilled. And we're saying this one, Matthew 23, has been fulfilled. So maybe you're misinterpreting your prophecy. And there was the temple was destroyed previously as it had been predicted. It, Judah would mm -hmm. fall to Babylon. But there was a time limit. It's like 70 years. You, you, you're going to learn a lesson. 
seven years, you're going to come back. And then what's, what's Haggai about? Get this temple rebuilt. Yep. Where's, what lesson is still not being learned? When they came back from Babylon, they quit with the idols. And they got to have a temple again. What lesson still has not been learned since the first century AD? So, um, yeah, so uh, I think that's really good to see. We can we can kind of pick through some other passages and notice what Micah is talking about, and even hear what he's talking about. I wanted to just highlight a couple more things in this paragraph, and then look a little bit further in Micah four. Um, but what God is showing is this really great time period where all nations, all people will be able to be his. They'll be able to come together. Um, Justin mentioned uh, what he says in verse three, which is a cool picture. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There's going to be peace. Nations not going to be warring against other nations. Uh, they're not going to learn war anymore. Um, all of the people will walk in the name of the Lord. They're not going to be afraid, all these kinds of things. Um, and there's that picture in verse four of every man will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Uh, it's kind of a strange phrase. When you guys want to talk about what that means really quickly. Uh, if I remember correctly, that there's actually a, a blessing that God had promised the people back. Remember, it's Leviticus or Deuteronomy. You're catching me off guard here. But I do remember that uh, Assyria, um, the Rabshakeh, was sent by the Assyrian king saying, hey, if you'll just surrender to us, you know, it'll be great. You'll have your own vine tree and your own figs, and it'll it'll be great. Mm-hmm. You'll just come and, you know, just surrender, and we'll take you into captivity, but it'll be great. Uh, and yep. here God is, you know, flipping the script, if you will, and saying, you're, you're going to uh, come to my house. Um, mm-hmm. And he's inviting all the nations, not just... Uh, into captivity, uh, certainly not, instead into this freedom where they have uh, these blessings from God. Yeah, and then you go a little further back in Israel's history in Solomon's reign, which is maybe the pinnacle of the, the Israelite nation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was described under Solomon's reign that every man was sitting under his vine and his fig tree. It's kind of, it, it's this this way of saying that there was prosperity, there was goodness, everything was good, everything was great, everything was peaceful. And God says, I'm going to accomplish that with all nations. Um, so that's the picture that we get. But real time, that's not what's happening whenever Micah is prophesying this. Real time, Israel is being destroyed. Judah is being you know, besieged by Assyria. Things are not looking really good. You got the Rabshakeh guy um, that, that's prophesying, or not prophesying, but speaking at this time as well from Assyria. And God describes a little bit of what's going on through Micah in Micah 4 verse 9, a little bit further down. He says, now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in an open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So God says, right now, this is that's not the picture of what's going on in Judah, what's going on in Jerusalem, what's going on in Israel. Right now, there's mourning, there's weeping, there's crying out, there's pain, there's anguish. They're going to be you know, evicted from their cities, going to have to live in Babylon, all those sorts of things. So Micah 4 leaves with this picture of God promising his mountainous city going to envelop the earth. It's going to bring all peoples in. There's going to be peace. But you're living in a time of no peace. Uh, you're living in a time of aggression and hardship and difficulty. 
So Micah 4 leaves you kind of thinking, when is this going to happen? What are we going to, what's going to accomplish this? Who's going to accomplish this? And that brings in Micah chapter 5, where in Micah 5 and verse 2, it says, uh, well, verse 1 kind of hits that same idea. It says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike and judge Israel on the cheek. So that's the situation. But then verse 2 says, but you, O Bethlehem of Paphra, uh, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So, Micah 5 answers the question of what's going to be the sign, what's going to be the beginning of this kingdom of God, this mountain of the Lord accomplishing this peace. There's going to be a king that's coming who's going to be able to accomplish this. And Micah describes that king a little bit in verse 2. It says that he is a ruler in Israel. His coming forth is from old, from ancient days. He's going to be out of Bethlehem, born of Bethlehem, and some other different key factors like that. Um, he describes what he'll be doing in verse 4. He's going to stand and shepherd the nation, shepherd his flock with the strength of the Lord. It's a really vivid picture. And if you know anything about Jesus... Um, which, you know, we're trying to just look from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but how can you read Micah 5 and not think of Jesus, not think of the gospel? That's clearly who we're looking for here. But to the Jews, they're in this time period of where God's promising this peaceful nation, this, this prosperous kingdom, and they're being attacked, they're being besieged. And they're in the time period of verse 3, in the first phrase of verse 3 of Micah 5, where it says, right now, he's going to give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. So we're waiting for this king to be born. Micah 4 and 5 leave this picture of we need a king to come and deliver us and establish this kingdom of God to bring all people in and bring about peace. And you get to the Gospels. That's Jesus. The king is born in Bethlehem and he's reigning as king in God's kingdom. Go ahead, Justin. I think if nothing else, uh, passages like this, I mean, these are the kinds of things I think are they're, they're so rich when you read the Old Testament. It, it's constantly pointing to we need someone. We need someone to come. Uh, I, I'd heard when I was young that the Old Testament um, is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Uh, another way of putting that, someone said the Old Testament is someone's coming, someone's coming, and the New Testament is someone has come. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but read a passage like this and say. I, like, when's he going to come? Uh, if it's not Jesus, then who? Uh, Bethlehem is you know, the, the birthplace of David. So we want someone like David. Uh, and then in verse 4, he's going to shepherd the flock of God. I, I need someone who has that kind of shepherd heart who's going to care for God's people. The weak that you had pointed out earlier um, in 4-7, you know, the lame, those who are cast off. He's going to make them into a, a great nation. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily have an answer just reading this Old Testament passage, but it leaves me with this big question. Like I, I, I have a question and I, I, I'm seeking an answer. So the Old Testament in that sense doesn't satisfy. Uh, in fact, it, it makes me hungrier. Jonathan? Yeah, and that's kind of the point a little bit. We can look, you know, in hindsight and see, oh, this is talking about Jesus. But if we're reading it from the perspective of like what you said, the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah, it, uh, passages like this, prophecies like this, 
they they sound amazing. They sound wonderful. What a promise! But it leaves you with, so when is that going to happen? <laughs> you know, we, we need that. We need something. There, there's this hole that's left and needs to be filled. When you get done with the Old Testament, you don't arrive at a place. And even the Jews in the first century weren't at a place where they were like, we have everything that we need. They were looking for the coming Messiah. They were looking for this person. Now, a lot of them rejected it as being Jesus, but they were looking for this hole to be filled that, that God promised would be filled. Go ahead, Scott. And one of the very striking things about this Micah passage is even he whose comings for are from of old, from everlasting, is, is one of the translations. Mm -hmm. there, there's a young man, I don't know if y'all caught it in the news yet, there's a young man right now that Orthodox, uh, that certain Orthodox Jews are really, really, really excited about. He is a major celebrity. Um, he's got a huge following. I'm not sure if they're claiming he's the Messiah or not, but he's a big, big deal among certain Orthodox Jews. Uh, he's apparently got a phenomenal memory and has memorized the Talmud or whatever. Uh, I don't know how much of it or all of it, but that's like volume after volume after volume after volume. Um, but he's not raising the dead. He's not making the blind see, which are some things we read about back in the Old Testament mm -hmm. to look for. If you remember, like when John the Baptist sends his disciples, just confirming, are you, are you the one? Tell him what you see. And then he cites these things that the Old Testament, he's not doing those things. But nobody born today is from everlasting. Nobody today born today is from of old. Um, you know, I was conceived and born in 1959. Now that seems like from of old to you guys, but that's not from of old. Uh, we've all got some very finite starting points. And this brings to mind another psalm, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord. And so here's another good question. It's a question you guys recognize, but to ask somebody about the Old Testament, why would David call his own son, well, the Christ, whose son is he? Son of David. Why would David call his own son his Lord? Well, the answer is in Micah 5. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just another human being that popped onto the stage. Uh, here, this is somebody from everlasting. And then there's Psalm 22. Mm -hmm. Nailed. And there's a really interesting uh, thing about that I'll come back to in a minute about uh, they pierced my hands and feet. I'll come back to that in a minute, but I'll turn it back over to you guys. Hmm. Well, the passage... Yeah. So that's, <clears throat> go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, so that's pretty much everything I want to say about Micah 4, four and 5. Um, but Scott Scott mentioned Psalm 110. Uh, I don't know, Justin, you want to... You said you were going to talk about that. You want to look at that? Yeah, Psalm, Psalm 110 was the passage I picked up, and it is a great segue um, because uh, I... I forgotten about that point in Micah 5 too, you know, from, from of old. Um, you also have the, where is it that it says uh, the uh, a branch from the root of Jesse? Isaiah. This is in Isaiah, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Isaiah 9. Um, Jesse being the father of David. And so you've got the, this king sprouting up from the father of, so he's not just from 
David. He's from the father of David, but he's from the root of the father of David. And so it's kind of that that from of old idea. Psalm 110 is uh, a, a fascinating passage on a number of levels. Uh, one, it is it is the kind of the pet passage for New Testament writers. It's the sure. most quoted passage in all the New Testament. It is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament not less than 18 times. Uh, you, you find it all over the place. Uh, you find it in the Gospels, you find it in Ephesians, Colossians, anytime where the New Testament talks about uh, the right hand of God, usually that's in reference to Psalm 110. And of course the Hebrews writer uses it extensively because he's got this fascination with Melchizedek. And that's where things get a little squirrely uh, in Psalm 110, if you will. Um, Jesus uses it in what you had referenced in Matthew 22. Um, they've been bombarding him with questions all week, uh, testing him, trying to get him to trip up. Um, and then he throws one back at them. But I think he's not just trying to trick them. He's trying to make a point. But you know, he, he says, you know, look, who's David talking about here in Psalm 110? Psalm 10 verse 1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments or on the holy mountains. Uh, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it goes on to talk about the Lord being at his right hand and him executing judgments among the nations. Uh, pretty pretty brutal stuff here at the end. He's a victorious king. But there are two times in this passage that, that God is speaking. Verse 1, he says to the Lord, you know, this is all. There are two lords here in the English translations, which is kind of unfortunate. It makes it a little, again, squirrely. Uh, you've got the all capital Lord. Um, that's Yahweh, right? And how would you how would you describe this lowercase Lord? What, what does that mean? I don't remember the exact words for like Hebrew, but uh, in Greek, wasn't it like Adonai um, or, or something like that? That meant master or or king, someone that was over um, over yeah. another person. And in this text, yeah, so you, you've got in the singular, because sometimes those the Old Testament words. Or forgot or in Hebrew in uh, plural in Hebrew, but here it's in singular. It's Adon. Uh, I might not be pronouncing, it, but Adonai. But shortened down to Adon. So it's Yahweh says to Adon, and that corresponds to like Kurios in the Greek, uh, which right. means master. Yeah. So you, so you've got the God talking to the master, and to your question, uh, Scott. Um, who, who is David talking to here? I, I read that some, some Jews have thought and taught that this is actually talking about David. It's not really David talking about his Lord. It's talking about David. And that, that's kind of a curious thing. If this Psalm is about David, David, let's say David is verse one, the Lord, the, the master, the ruler that Yahweh is putting in charge. Um, well, there's, you know, there's some sense to that. God did make David victorious. I don't know that he ever made him victorious, though, in verse five, over all the nations. You know, David's David's rule was not worldwide, um, and and there's another problem uh, in verse four. Uh, he he was never a priest, Jonathan. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Also, um, David, David was never appointed as a priest of God. Yeah, and, and so there's this kind of shadowy character that's brought up, um, Melchizedek. And I don't know, what do you guys know about Melchizedek? Just just from the Old Testament, no. He, he's a guy that shows up every thousand years. Uh, references to thousand <laughs> years. Oh, in Genesis 14, you know, Abraham goes, conquers the bad guy kings, rescues Lot and the other people. And God's king and priest, Melchizedek, shows up, kind of gives him a thumbs up, and Abraham pays tithes to him. And then mm -hmm. we don't see him again mentioned until a thousand years later when David writes, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit on my right hand and, and rule, yeah. and you're going to be a priest like Melchizedek. And I got to tell you, like, if I were, if I were, if this were like a, a TV series, like, you know, there are these uh, seasonal TV series, it'd be like something dropped in season one, some mysterious name left on a piece of paper on someone's bedside table. And you go, you know, that was the guy behind that thing or whatever. And then six seasons later, you see another drop of the name and you're like, <laughs> what's going on? And then in the, the online forums. Yeah, people are gonna be talking about this guy all over. Like, who is this guy? And like, there's that Melchizedek. And like, what is going on? And then you never hear another thing about him. And it's just, it's the oddest thing. Um, but what what seems to set Melchizedek apart is from that Genesis 14 story. Abraham, who is the heir of God, he's like he's the blessed of God. Genesis 12, God's blessing Abraham, blessing, blessing, blessing Abraham. And then this other guy shows up, and he's also blessing Abraham. And it's not just that he's blessing Abraham. Abraham, like you said, he's tithing to Melchizedek, which seems to indicate some dynamic of power. Like, like Abraham is subservient to Melchizedek, which does something to Abraham's family. Uh, if you've got Melchizedek and Abraham's saying, you know, I'm, you're greater than me, then where should the rest of Israel fall in relation to Melchizedek? Yeah, underneath him. I guess a yeah, it's kind of a rhetorical question, I guess, but like, it's just this very odd thing. But he is priest, he is king. Um, interestingly, in Joshua 10, verse one, later uh, you've got the Jebusites who are ruling over Jerusalem. You know, Melchizedek is king in Salem, Jerusalem, uh, and his name means king of righteousness. Later in Joshua's day, there was um, Adonai Zedek, or Adana Zedek, I don't know how you say the name, but it means Lord of Righteousness. So the, the title, I guess, kind of continued over time. You get to David, he's kind of a man of righteousness, a man for God's own heart. Um, he was a, a great warring king. He was victorious, never over the whole world, but he's still never priest. And so there's this sort of question, like how is, how is David gonna fit this? And he doesn't. So that sort of view was abandoned by the Jews. So in Jesus's day, the question wasn't, how is this David? It's who is David talking about? Uh, and, and so you've got this person who's supposed to be a victorious king, but also a priest, not after the Aaronic priesthood. He's not after the, uh, the order of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. It's like pre-Abraham. 
uh, kind of going back to those ancient days, those days of old. And it presents this picture of a person that we want to offer ourselves to freely in verse three, but I don't, who is he? And so there's this big question about who is this guy in Psalm 110. David seemed to be pretty excited about him. I sure would like to meet him. And there you go. And who's the holy one that is not left to Sheol and doesn't see corruption? Because mm -hmm. David yeah, Peter makes the yeah yeah. So let's put together a few things. We got Moses says the Lord's going to raise up another prophet like me. That's mm -hmm. what we're going to explore when he comes. Listen to him. Yeah, all Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, 18. is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember when I was, I don't know, maybe 23 or so, I was reading through Deuteronomy, I saw that verse, and I thought, I wonder how deep that goes. And when you start looking for <laughs> parallels between Moses and Jesus, it's astounding. Um, so when he comes, listen to him. There's all these verses about the Torah and the sacrifices and, and, and the animal sacrifices for sin and the priesthood and everything else. And there's these promises about there's the instruction to build the tabernacle and everything else where all this is going to be done. But there's also curses that if you're disobedient, your sanctuary is be destroyed and you're going to be hauled away. That happens. They're brought back. They're told to rebuild it again. They rebuild it. But then there's these constant, you know, over and over, these references like you've been pointing out uh, and to David. You know, I'll raise up your seat after you and he will be a king forever. His king will never come to an end. David's earthly national kingdom kind of came to an end. And there's nobody king there now. There's no house of God there now. There's no Levitical priesthood now. There's, but we have, again, these prophecies not only pointing to somebody that's David's master sitting on the right hand of God that's going to be king and priest. Somebody in Bethlehem whose goings forth are from of old or from tra one translation from everlasting. Somebody whose body won't go to the tomb or, or see decay. And you, you have all these things pointing forward and, and no fulfillment if, if you can. And then Isaiah 53 talking about someone dying for our sins and it's not a sheep or a goat. It's a person that although we like sheep have gone astray, there's this man that has our sins laid on him. And that's such a obvious first place to go to. We've especially been looking at other places, but when you're discussing this with somebody, you know, go there too. Uh, and and he, this is what Paul did week after week, you know, um, or place after place in the synagogues going through these scriptures and showing that it behooved the Messiah to suffer and to die and to be raised again. Oh, by the way, there's also Daniel 9 where it said the temple would be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And Jeremiah 31 will be a new covenant. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, wow, there's just, there's so much to talk about in that. And, and Scott, you mentioned a lot more passages we don't have time to go into in detail. Um, but uh, the Old Testament is just full of this, this picture, this image of God wanting to bless his people, but it's pointing forward to the future blessings that will come. Um, the, the people of Israel are left in, in the end of the Old Testament longing for the future. Um, they, they're longing for this, this fulfillment of this, this reestablishment of their nation, this king that's supposed to come, this freeing from sin, all these things that God promised he would able to be able to accomplish. And so if, if you want to just take the Old Testament, just this is all we need. This is what, this is what we have. We don't need anything beyond this. The Old Testament is written and kind of designed in such a way to make you want more, <laughs> to lead you to more. Um, and those are just a couple of, of examples. Like, like we've been saying, there's so many other places um, that show that it was never God's intention of just leaving it with this original covenant. He had planned beforehand a, a new covenant, a better covenant through his son to reconcile all people to himself. Uh, go ahead, Justin. Just one thought, and I know you'll probably want to wrap us up here. Um, a lot of these passages we've been talking about come from later in the Old Testament narrative and the Hebrew Bible narrative. Uh, the Deuteronomy passage, though, is very early on. And so this idea that uh, we're looking forward to something uh, that you, you, you said again, um, that's found early on in the Bible. In Deuteronomy, it's found on page three, you know, Genesis three, uh, the the statement that God makes to the serpent, there's this offspring of the woman we're waiting for, and he's going to deal this mortal wound to the serpent, even though the, the serpent strikes back. Uh, and, and there's this picture, we're waiting for someone to fulfill that. And it's it never seems to get fulfilled in the Old Testament. Uh, so there's there's always been this looking forward this kind of uh there were the good old days and then they ended now we need them back you kind of got that in the garden you know <clears throat> the good old days in the garden we need someone to take us back then you have the reign of david reign of solomon and then you get to the prophets like we need someone to take us back and so there's always like we we need to go back and not just go back to the good old days of david or the good old days of the garden but go back to this presence of god dwelling with god the, the mount of zion isaiah 2 micah 4 that he's brought us to there's always this upward climb to where god wants to take us and and jesus seems to fulfill all that so uh, this is a, a really helpful perspective i found in reading the old testament i just want to mention real quick, uh pretty by watching uh, and, and you guys may have already both seen it, um, but there, there's one of the most powerful videos uh, I've ever seen. It's it's a Jewish man that believes Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you go to where he tells him how to become a Christian, he, he gives some standard evangelical answer that's not actually what the New Testament says. But aside from that, it's just so powerful because he's on the street. Part of it, I think, is in New York City. Part of it is in Jerusalem. And he's asking the same questions. He's having the same conversation, but with a variety of different people. They're all Jews. Some of them are speaking in English. Some of them are speaking in Hebrew. Uh, and the outfit that put it out is metabreen.org. M-E-D-A-B-R-I-M. That's M E. D A B R I M, metabream.org. 
And the title of it is, Could We Have Missed Our Messiah? Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely amazing. It's a compilation of Jews, male, female, young and old, reading Isaiah 53 for the very first time. If you've never seen it, you should watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so maybe um, just to wrap us up, we, we referenced this verse, but I think this would be a good place for us to, to end off at in Luke chapter 24. Um, after Jesus has filled his ministry, died, and is resurrected, um, he appears to the apostles again. And in Luke 24, verse 44, he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And I'll just point out one thing in, in verse 44, that's including all of the old covenant. Um, that's referring to the, the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, which is the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And that's what Jesus says, everything in the law of Moses, the Torah, everything in the prophets, the Nevi'im, and everything in the Psalms, the Ketuvim, must be fulfilled about me. So all scripture, and we looked at some of the prophets, some of the Psalms, and we referenced some of the things in the law, Jesus is everywhere in those books. He says those were fulfilled. And then in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that leads right into Acts, Acts chapter one and two, and the message of the kingdom of God being established, people being welcomed in all nations flowing to the mountain of the Lord. It, it's it's fulfilled in Jesus. That that hole that we're left with in the Old Testament, Jesus is the answer. And we believe that. Um, we, we believe the scriptures that teach that. And we want our, our listeners to believe that and turn to Jesus too. Um, God wants to welcome all nations in, and he did that through his son. Um, so uh, go ahead, Scott. If I can take 15 seconds to throw in one final thought. Just think of how it all compiles and gets condensed in Christ. Uh, Prophet, priest, king, like you see in Hebrews. Uh, He's the the priest and he's the sacrifice. Uh, He's the, um, he's also the house of God that comes in tabernacles with man. Uh, And it's just all these figures come together in one image. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So uh, if you have any questions uh, about that, I mean, we don't have the time in 45 minutes to discuss everything in the Old Testament and, and how that points us to the New Testament. But it's all over the Old Testament. We'd love to talk with you more about that. If you have questions about how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ and in the in the New Covenant, uh, you can submit your questions to us at BibleQuest.org. Or if you have any other Bible questions you'd like us to discuss on our future programs, you can visit the same website, BibleQuest.org, and leave your name and your question, and we'd be happy to help you uh, through that with the scriptures. Uh, we want to talk about what you want to talk about, and so uh, that's what we enjoy waiting for, getting some feedback from our audience. That's all that we have time for this week, though, and so we will plan on seeing everyone next week, God willing.